How should we respond right now, today, to the abortion conversation happening in our culture? What's wrong with the way Christians are talking about abortion, and how do we fix it? Dana Gresh asks these difficult questions, suggests that God is an advocate for choice, but also unashamedly defends life in this difficult teaching on a difficult topic. She asks if the Christian response to abortion might be missing two important ingredients in this message delivered at Grace Prep, a new model in Christian education founded by her husband, Bob Gresh. I want to cover a topic that's really hot with debate in our culture right now, and that is the conversation surrounding the topic of abortion. This is a hard topic for me to cover. I don't really want to cover this topic. As I studied it last night, my heart was grieved, and I went to bed sad, and I woke up covered in sadness. And I I think one of the things that's hard for me about talking about this topic, you won't see me post about it on social media, because I don't think that is gentle and respectful. That doesn't mean that I don't have an opinion about it, and that doesn't mean that I don't care about it. But it's a hard topic to think about, to study. And and I don't want anyone in this room listening to my voice right now. I don't want anyone hearing my voice to be more wounded that they, than they might already be for choices that they've made. I'm going to say some things today that are difficult to say. I'm going to say some things today that are controversial. And I want to put a disclaimer on the message that it's really important that you hear me out to the end. And if some of it sounds hard or harsh, I want you to just whisper the name of Jesus in your heart. Because he'll clarify it. He'll make it safe for you. And if some of it sounds controversial, I want you to just sit me down, stay where you are, and hold on to hear what I have to say, okay? Because as as I was researching and studying the history of abortion, I thought some things that surprised myself. I I was a little surprised. And the first thing that that I really have to say is, you know, I've been asking myself, how should we respond right now, today, in the year 2019, to the abortion conversation happening in our culture? It's a pro-choice, pro-life conversation. That's, those are the terms that we use. And as I was studying, something became really clear in my heart. And here's one of those places where you're going to have to hear the whole thing. I think God is an advocate for choice. Now, before you throw me out into the, the February cold parking lot and call me a heretic, listen to my heart. I think God is an advocate for choice. Before, um, pro-choice might be a, a term that's claimed as a political ideology, but I think it's a spiritual ideology. Joshua 25.15 says, choose this day who you will serve. God says you get to choose. Deuteronomy 30.15 God says, see, I set before you life and prosperity, death and destruction. Now choose life so that your children may live. But it's your choice. Job declares, let us choose what is right. 
In Psalm 25, I love this one. We're promised that if we pursue friendship with God, he'll instruct us in what to choose. That's why we can't separate our intelligent faith from our friendship with Jesus. Because he's the one that ultimately instructs us to choose. Of course, the greatest proof that God is pretty much an advocate for choice is found in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis. Of course, I'm talking about the story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. And God puts this tree in the middle of the garden and he says to Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree because if you do, you'll die. And sometimes I wonder, why didn't he control the story? He's God. He could, have, he could have put a moat around that tree, so it made it very difficult for Adam and Eve to get to the tree, right? He could have caused that tree not to blossom so that it didn't produce fruit that they could eat. He could have controlled it. He could have controlled them, but he didn't. Why? He gave them choice because he loved them. And he wanted to be loved back. He didn't create robots. He didn't create puppets. He created human beings with the ability and the heart to choose love and life. God is pro-choice. I really wish that there weren't a side of the political debate that had taken that word and distorted it into such misunderstanding. But there is. And so here we are in a place in the conversation where we have to really process through what does that mean that we have a choice? Every woman that's ever been pregnant had a choice. Your mom had a choice. Your grandma had a choice. Your great-grandma had a choice. Your great-great-grandma had a choice. And they chose life. Aren't you kind of glad they did? But it's not an easy choice for some women. It's a very painful choice for some women. It's a very frightening choice for some women. Some women find themselves in a situation where they didn't have a choice whether they got pregnant because they were abused or raped. And then they face another choice that they do have control over. And I ask myself, one of the questions I've been asking myself as I ask how should Christians respond is why? Why did women make that choice? Why did a woman make that choice? You can always trace it back to pain. You can always trace it back to fear. You can always trace it back to shame. And if we don't look at that woman and these women with compassion in our hearts for the pain and the hard choice that they had before them, well, then we've missed the point, haven't we? We don't have the heart of God that gives us choice. Jonathan Edwards, in a, in a, in a book entitled The Freedom of the Will, defines biblical freedom this way. He says, man is free to choose according to his opinion. Human beings always choose according to their strongest desire and so make free choices. We do what we want to do, what we most want to do. Now, you might argue, but what if someone's holding a gun to my head and forces me to hand over my wallet? Even then, your strongest desire prompts your choice. Of course, you don't really ultimately desire to give your wallet away, but if your choice is your wallet or your life, you hand over your wallet, proving that you want to live more than you want money in your wallet. You still choose. 
Even in our hardest situations, even in the most painful, fearful moments, we still have a choice. It doesn't mean that it's an easy one. So the question I've been asking, well, two questions. Why did they make that choice? What was the pain? And the other question I've been asking myself lately is how did God's people respond to the abortion debate throughout history? Because abortion is nothing new. It's been around for a really long time. And the first stop that I made was in ancient Greece and Rome. I wanted to know how did the first Christians respond to the pro-life abortion conversation? And so I found this book by a guy named O.M. Baki, I think, B-A-K-K-E. You see, I'm not that, I'm just like trying to figure this out for myself. I'm not like super learned, I'm not like super smart in this subject area, but I found some people who are, and this guy is. And he writes in an invaluable book entitled, When Children Become People, that in Greece and Rome, children of any age were considered non-people. They were non-humans. And I want to read to you exactly what he wrote in his book. He wrote, Back then, the entire social world was undergirded by a universally held, if implicit, view. Society was organized in concentric circles, with the circle at the center containing the highest value people, and the people in the outside circles having little to no value. At the center was, hold on to your horses, girls, because this is going to tick you off, freeborn adult males. Anybody ticked off? Okay, I am. And other persons were valued depending on how similar they were to the freeborn adult male. Such was the lot of foreigners, slaves, women, and children. Various pagan authors described children as being more like plants than human beings. It's laughable to us now, right? It's laughable to us. And that, we're going to come back to that. because, And, and this had concrete con- consequences. So the fact that they looked as children, as plants, had consequences. Well-to-do parents typically did not interact with their children, leaving them up to the care of slaves. In Rome, a child's father had the right to kill him for any reason whatsoever until he came of age. Well past the first day or week or month of life into the first many years of life. One of the most notorious and frequent ancient practices was expositio. Basically, the abandonment of unwanted newborn babies. Of course, girls were abandoned much more, much more often than boys. Let's go back to the fact who had value, freeborn adult males. Which meant, as the historical sociologist Rodney Stark has pointed out, that Roman society had an extremely lopsided gender ratio, which created a lot of tension and a lot of other sorts of sin. According to our stories, most abandoned children died... But some were rescued, and I use that, I'm quoting. He, He writes in quotations, rescued into slavery. And the most profitable way for a small child slave to earn money was as a sex slave. Brothels specializing in child sex slaves, particularly boys, were established legal and thriving businesses in ancient Rome. So... Anybody else sick? I I read some things last night about Greek and Roman culture that I can't even speak to you today because it makes me so sick to have read. Woke up at 5.15 this morning thinking about those pictures in my head and wanted just to vomit. 
have to ask myself, though, in my anger, when I get on my um, soapbox of justice against the sex trafficking and the abuse and the murder, what was the pain? What was the pain? So I did a little bit of digging, I did a little bit of research, and I found that the reason that parents distance themselves, who is the person that will most protect a child, generally? Mom and dad, right? Don't get between Mama Bear and her baby. Mm -mm. The reason that parents distance themselves, remember I said that it was usually slaves that were raising the children because parents were staying distant. Why? High infant mortality rate. You get close to this child. This child most likely will die before he or she comes of age. You see, coming of age was when the threat of death was over. Then the child was no longer a plant. Can you imagine the pain? Having baby after baby, child after child, knowing that one's probably going to die. They're not going to make it. That was the pain that led to all this brokenness. Now, how are the Christians responding? How are the first Christians responding? We don't have any Bible verses that tell us how they responded. We don't have Bible stories at all that tell us how they responded. But we have ancient historic documents that recorded almost mockingly how the Christians responded. And so I want to share with you a couple of things that I found last night. Um, One of them was reported in a British news magazine called The Week. And the title of the article was Christianity Invents Children, which I didn't really understand. I thought, what does that mean? Well, I went on to read. Today it is simply taken for granted that the innocence and vulnerability of children makes them beings of particular value and entitled to particular care. We also romanticize children, their beauty, their joy, their liveliness. Our culture encourages us to let ourselves fall prey to our gooey feelings whenever we look at baby pictures. What could be more natural? In fact, this view of children is a historical oddity. If you disagree, just go back to the view of children that prevailed in the ancient pagan world, Greek and Roman culture. Exposito required children to be left in the trash heap outside of cities. So when they were abandoning these babies that they decided they didn't really want, mostly girls, they put them in the garbage heap outside the cities. The article goes on to say Christians watched the trash heaps and quietly rescued the babies, taking them in to be part of their own families or finding another Christian family who would. And then the article said this, but really Christianity's invention of children That is, its invention of the cultural idea of children as treasured human beings with value was really an outgrowth of its most stupendous and revolutionary idea, the radical equality and infinite value of every single human being. The rights that every human being has inerrant when born. If the God who made heaven and earth chose to reveal himself, not as an emperor, but as a slave punished on the cross, then no one could claim higher dignity than anyone else on the basis of earthly status. That was indeed a revolutionary idea. And it changed our culture so much that we no longer even recognize it. That is why you scoffed and giggled when I said the children were considered plants. Because it doesn't make any sense. 
It's beyond our imagination to understand that you could take a baby to a trash heap and leave it. That, that you could have whatever reason whatsoever that you are dissatisfied with your child as a father and simply murder it. Murder him or her. The Christian's response was quiet. We don't know their names. We don't know the names of the people that went to the trash heap. They didn't picket Caesar. They didn't have signs that said, we're so smart and we're so right and you're so wrong. I really want to see somebody actually do scripture instead of throw it in other people's faces. That's what the early Christians did. They did scripture. They did what the heart of God told them to do. There was no re- nothing rebellious or loud, no picketing, no signs. They lived it quietly. Last night, my next stop was ancient Egypt because I thought, you know what? I think abortion's probably older. I think murder of children is probably older than Greek and Roman culture. I was like, what is the first time that we have any record that there were abortions taking place? And the, the fact is that Egypt is the first place we have anything actually recorded. And we find the de- earliest known description of abortion comes from the Ebers papyrus. Am I saying that right? Is it Ebers or Ebers? E-B-E-R-S? I've heard of it. It's a famous document that smart people talk about sometimes. Um, it was written in 1550 B.C. It was an ancient... Egyptian medical text that described various procedures during that time. And it suggested that an abortion could be induced with the use of a plant fiber tampon that was coated with a compound that included honey and crushed dates. And later herbal abortions included the long extinct sylphium, which is an herb, the most prized medicinal plant of the ancient world, and pennyroyal, which is still sometimes used for abortions today in our world, though it's a very toxic and very dangerous. Um, how are God's people responding to that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Open your Bibles, because we do have a biblical record of this in Exodus 1, and we're going to read it today. We're going to start by reading in verse 1, and we're going to go all the way to 22, but we're really only going to highlight a couple of these verses. But I want you to get the backdrop of this. I mean, it's going to be familiar to you, because everybody knows the story of Joseph, right? Joseph and the coat of many colors and, you know, all that stuff. So this is right after um, Joseph dies. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each of his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. The Egyptians were in the dread 
of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sephara and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with them, with the midwives, And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrew, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So here's one thing that we know, is that the research tells us that those who were midwives during this era generally were midwives because they were incapable of having children. They were barren. And so something that was useful because women had one use and one value in this very misogynistic world was that was having children. So if you couldn't have children, at least help the other women have children. And so we see these women, when they're told to kill the baby boys, they don't. And we see God filling their wombs and giving them children. He blesses their choice. He blesses putting their own lives at risk. These women were slaves. They were not valued. They may have been single, and maybe that's why they were barren, but we know that somehow these two women eventually... Now, what was the pain? Remember the question I always said to ask, what was the pain? Well, we don't really know too much about Pharaoh, oddly enough, but, but we know that he was afraid of these Israelites taking everything from him. He saw them growing in power and he was fierce. So this was a national security threat type thing. And you know what? I think a lot of times national security issues are an issue of fearing and valuing ourselves over loving and protecting another culture. And that's what this was. This was that kind of thing. Now, When I was looking at this, though, I saw a two-sided coin. As I was looking at our culture, as I was looking at the the Greek-Roman culture, and as I was looking at this culture, I was like, okay, he's only killing the baby boys. Why wasn't he killing the girls, too? He had decided to control the population growth of the Hebrews, right? So why not all of them? Or why not 20% of them? Or why not 50% of them? Well, he was afraid that the boys could grow up to be soldiers and to be strong. But he wanted the girls to grow up to be slaves. Now, if you look at human trafficking and you look at slavery, domestic slavery and labor labor is one form of human trafficking. But by and large, human trafficking is about sex and abuse. 95% of trafficked humans in the world today are trafficked for sex. This was about sex. This was about sex. This was about those little girls growing up so that they could either clean houses or do whatever the men in that house wanted. 
This was about abuse. And I began to look at that, and I began to, to, to think back to, to um, the, the Greek-Roman culture, where who had value there? Who, who was kept alive there more often? The boys. One of the highest values of property that a man in the Greek-Roman culture could have was a boy under the age of 12 that he could have sex with. That meant he had value. That meant he had status in society. That meant he had money. That meant he had worth. So I began to see this as this double-sided coin where in each culture, not only when abortion was prolific, there wasn't the absence of prolific sexual abuse at the same time. Can you see that also in our culture right now? That as abortion enters the forefront of the debate, it's about 24 months after an awareness of how out of control sexual abuse against women is. But it's not always women who are being sexually abused. And one of these three eras that we're looking at, it was the boys. Here's what I want to say. We cannot be a culture that says women have value. And women should be protected and respected. And when they say the word no, it should, be a, it should be respected. And also be a culture that says, let's kill our babies. It doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. You want to have an intelligent faith? Life has value. If you want to say that women should not be abused and women should be protected, you must also say that babies should not be abused and babies should be protected. And when, a, when any individual, no matter how big, how small they are, says no, it should be respected. Now you might say, but how does a, a baby say no? Well, a baby can't verbalize the word no. A baby can't verbally tell you that they have intelligently chosen to have life. But we have video of babies in the middle of abortion fighting for their lives. Fighting with fists and feet, wincing in pain, saying no with every little part of their tiny little being. You can't be a culture that says... No should be respected unless it is across the board. It doesn't make any sense. But these two women, Shapira and Pua, two women rarely mentioned in scripture, but so brave, so courageous. Now, were they very vocal? No. Now, you might be looking at that and saying, well, didn't they lie to Pharaoh? I don't know if they did. Maybe they did. But we see that, that, that they said to Pharaoh, these, women, these Hebrew women are vigorous in labor. They give birth before we could get there. Well, we also notice in the scriptures that for whatever reason, the Israelites were having a lot of babies. It seems like they were having a lot more babies than the Israelites. Maybe God was supernaturally blessing them as part of his plan to free them. Um, maybe they were giving birth quickly. Maybe these women, because they feared God and loved life, maybe they were just a little slower to get to the Hebrews. They're like, yeah, I think I'll have a little lunch before I go help. You don't know, I don't know. Or maybe the Hebrew women were, had got, maybe they sent the word out to the Hebrew women. They were like, don't call them until like nine centimeters. Call them then when it's going to be too late when they get there. Maybe they gave them time to, I don't know. I just know that these women quietly chose life. They didn't pick it. They didn't make 
they, they did the scripture. They didn't throw it in people's faces. You see what I'm saying? Now, does that mean that we can't have a political conversation? No. The end of this story is that we have one baby boy who it is reported, his life is recorded, the one that was saved, not all of them, but one. What is his name? Moses. Now, what did Moses do? He was a voice to rebel against the government. He went to the government and he said, no, I am, I am the um, human trafficking advocate. I am going to set these people free. No more sex slaves in Egypt. No more labor slaves in Egypt. These people will be free. So, so obviously, scripture is not telling us that we can't have a voice. It's just that there aren't very many of us that are cut out for that. Most of us are called to the quiet rescue. Most of us are called to sit with a friend, to help them through the hurt. You know, last night, um, my mom and Lexi and Autumn and I were in Altoona shopping for wedding dresses because Autumn's getting married in August. And we're so excited. And we sat at this little Italian restaurant, and this topic was heavy on my heart. So we began talking about it. Um, and we began just sharing our thoughts and our hearts. My mom wept at the thought of what's happening in our culture today. And Lexi told a story that I think is the kind of quiet doing the scriptures that God loves. She told us of a time, I hope it's okay that I tell this, Lexi, when she was in college and a friend came to her. Well, she wasn't really a friend. She was more of an acquaintance. In fact, as Lexi tells the story, she says that the, the person showed up at her apartment and said, I'm kind of coming to you because I don't know you super well. I don't have anything to lose. So if you hate me after I tell you this, it doesn't really matter that much. But she still came and told Lexi that she thought maybe she was pregnant, but she wasn't sure, and she was scared. And Lexi asked her, you know, why do you think you're pregnant? She said, well, this and that, and, but I'm not really sure. I haven't taken a test. And Lexi said, well, I'm going to give you a week to take a test. And if you haven't taken a test, then you're going to come to my house. We're going to take a test. So she was so fearful she couldn't do it. She couldn't take that test. So Lexi went to the store, and she bought a test. And while she was there, she picked up a few balloons and some streamers. She asked her roommates, don't, come to my, don't, don't be in the house, don't be in the apartment tonight. So, that, so this friend came to the apartment, there's no roommates, but there's streamers and there's balloons. And Lexi said, you're going to take the test. And no matter which way it goes, we're going to have a party. Because if that, if that test is negative, whew, we're going we're gonna to party. But if that test is positive, we're going to celebrate life. I think that's kind of like these two Hebrew women. They said, oh, we're going to walk with you through this hard stuff. We need more women like these two Hebrew women. We need more women like Lexi. We need men. And listen, I don't want anybody to feel hurt if it's too late to blow up balloons. So I want you to know something. If you're hearing this and you feel like you didn't have someone's door to knock on, or when you did knock on the door, 
you weren't met with the same kind of love. You know what we also need? We need men and women who have felt the pain of abortion, telling their stories to help others through their hurt. This message was presented at Grace Prep, a new model in Christian education. If you enjoyed it and want to be equipped and encouraged to enter into difficult conversations with gentleness and respect, you might enjoy Dana's Masterclass in Sexual Theology and Healing. For three days, Dana and her husband Bob will personally mentor you as they prepare you to be an agent of healing and hope for both men and women, no matter their brokenness. Learn more at danagresh.com. This podcast was produced by Pure Freedom Ministries.